0: Hello and welcome to The Word Is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Life can stagger us at sometimes. Pain and suffering feel overwhelming. Uh, We can feel beaten down, depressed, shattered, and if not us, we most certainly see it happening to others. It all seems so unfair, perhaps even random. Where is God in all of it? That's the question we take on today as we look at the Book of Job. Alan, thank you for your marvelous insights.
1: You're welcome. It's uh, good to be back again and to do another podcast. Thank you, Kip.
0: Well, we came off of the Pentateuch and now we're into the Book of Job. The Book of Job is really quite different from other biblical books. Is there a reason for that?
1: Yeah, there is. Of course, we've moved away from from narrative and law to, um, to what, what we term the wisdom books. It's a cadre of, of philosophical searches, if you will. There are five books in the, in the wisdom section, Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Song. And, and each of them represent a quest for understanding, a quest for meaning, if you will. The book of Job is, um, is a quest for the meaning of suffering and pain, as you just pointed out. Psalms is a quest for the meaning of relationship and worship. Proverbs represents a quest for the meaning of wisdom itself. And Ecclesiastes, the quest for the meaning of life. And the Song of Songs, the quest for the meaning of love. So, yeah, these books are distinct. They're different. They're more philosophical in orientation. They're, um, they're very different and distinct from the kind of more prose or didactic approach or legal approach of so many of the books of the old testament
0: wisdom is an interesting um, interesting term uh, especially the difference between godly wisdom and human wisdom which seem to be at odds with one another uh, so often Uh, when you speak of wisdom are there insights special insights here to grasp
1: yeah, I think, I think there are. You know, basically you have uh, different types of wisdom literature, for example, even beyond the, the concept of wisdom, which we can return to in a moment. But there's kind of um, proverbial wisdom, I would call it. It consists of short, pithy sayings. The book of Proverbs, for example, is full of this kind of proverbial wisdom, the rules for personal happiness, And peace and joy and coming to grips with the nature of life itself. And then there's a second kind of approach or wisdom would be speculative wisdom, like Koheleth, the Ecclesiastes, Mm -hmm. which deals with the meaning of existence, the, the profound questions of life. And we have that in Job also. So, yes, there would be those kind of um, of wisdom concerns, but wisdom itself, you're right in talking about the distinction between human wisdom and divine wisdom. In First Corinthians chapter one, verse 24, it says, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. So, there, yeah, there is a distinction in terms of human wisdom and the wisdom of God. Examples of man's wisdom would be all the different philosophies of life. You know, deism, pantheism, mysticism, existentialism, agnosticism, atheism, nihilism, materialism marxism i mean you could go on and on and on with all, all of the, the isms all the isms all the isms of life yeah uh, corinthians paul says where's the wise man where's the scholar where's the philosopher of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world so paul would would make a, a point of saying that god's wisdom is really distinct from human wisdom and in his writings he would point out that you know God's wisdom is revealed by God. It's the word of the cross. It brings freedom. It is wiser than man's wisdom. It is full of truth um, and it's full of fruit. And it's uh, uh, constituted through faith. So those are kind of some of the things that we will encounter as we study the book of Job and other wisdom writings.
0: Hmm. Well, does the book answer the riddle of life? Well,
1: (laughs) kept. (laughs) We're getting a little bit beyond ourselves there, you know, that's too, too early to say that. If we're wanting the answer to the problem of pain, it's going to come, but you don't want to give it away at this stage, do
0: you? Okay, okay, okay. So tell us the story in brief.
1: Okay. Basically, what we have here in the book of Job is we're introduced to a righteous man. His name is Job. And God allows Satan to test him with every kind of suffering, The loss of his family, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health. And in so doing, Job expresses anger and frustration. And so you have this picture of Job expressing this anger and God remaining faithful. And then you have the input of uh, the comforters of Job. Mm -hmm. And they accuse Job of wrongdoing. Job pleads his innocence. And so there's a great debate that occupies the body of the material. It is then in chapter 38 that God enters into the debate and the real issue becomes apparent. Uh, it's not so much Job's suffering as it is God's sovereignty. Hmm. And you have it towards the end of the book, Job is submitting to God and, and in doing so, we learn a great deal about patience, faith, submission, suffering, what this is all about. So that, that's in essence, that would be the story. The, the story takes place in the land of us identified with Edom. Mm -hmm. And uh, Job's four basic friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. They represent the inadequacy of human wisdom to understand suffering and pain.
0: Hmm. So,
1: can I say also that the text of Job is very ancient. This book may be the oldest book in the entire Bible.
0: Really? Even older than, uh, than the writings of the Pentateuch?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Older, the oldest of all the books. It is very ancient in its origins.
0: Hmm. Is this a true story? That's a good question. I would
1: say that it uh, probably has its origins in truth. You know, the very fact that it says that it takes place in the land of Uz, which scholars identify with Edom, would indicate that if there's a place involved, there's a good chance that it might be uh, real in that sense. I mean, literally the case. And certainly there's no good reason to deny its authenticity. Hmm. But, but to be honest, it's, it, you know, we can't tell definitively that it is literally true because part of the problem of Job is found in the literary genre. When we come to understand scripture, we have to understand it within its own context. And the literary genre is really important to understand it. For example, when Paul is writing to the church at Rome, uh, he uses a genre that we call discourse. An appeal to the intellect. Every single word that he says is of, of fundamental importance. But when you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, in contrast, their approach would be prose, and they tell stories, and it appeals to the imagination. They're still true, but every word is not as crucial as it would be in discourse. And then when a writer uses poetry, it tugs on your heart, so it appeals to the emotion. And when Jesus and others use parable he's illustrating a profound truth i mean when when the good samaritan came along uh, to help the the man who'd been who'd who'd been robbed that wasn't literally true jesus simply was telling a story to illustrate a profound truth so when one when a person says what you know is this true it's a very difficult question of course it's true of course it's true they're all true but we've got to be true to what the writer intended and how he he wrote so part of Job is in prose but most of it is poetic
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so you know it's the message that it contains that is important and it's true now we know for example that chapters one and two are prose right the end of chapter 42 is also formatted as prose but the vast majority of the book in between those is poetic it's poetic style so to answer the question why am I suffering I mean, it's really appropriate because it's an emotional issue. Mm-hmm. So the writer takes an emotional tact and he writes in an emotional format. So when, when, when asking these questions of why is there pain in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is life so unfair? What the writer is doing, he's talking about a fallen world in which there is pain, in which there's distress, in which there's illness, in which there's disease, in which there are plagues, the pandemics, you know, all of this. And and in this instance, here is a man who loses everything. Mm -hmm. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. He loses his health. He loses his friendships. He loses his prestige in society. Because God permitted Satan to test Job.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So to answer your question, you know, is this a true story? Yes, I would say categorically it's it's a true story. Did it literally happen? I I, I can't answer. I don't know. I don't know. It could have. And certainly, by reference to the land of Oz, one might very well reasonably think that, yeah, that's a fair assumption, that it actually was a literal story. Could it be parabolic in the sense that it's illustrating profound truth? It could be, of course. Hmm. So, I I mean, I wouldn't stick my life on it, but I would would think, yes. uh, Certainly, I would say, by all means, categorically, it's a true story.
0: Inductively speaking, the way it's laid out is important. And and so when you talk about prose or poetic and so on, that's a choice that the author is making.
1: Exactly,
0: yeah. Now, how would you say the story unfolds, though? What are its component parts, then, for example? Good question. I mean, as I look at the book of Job, I see it
1: falling into four major sections. You've got the first two chapters, the bit that, that I referred to a moment ago as being prose. So they are very distinct from the. I mean, you, even in your Bible, when you open your Bible, you will notice that the print is different in the first two chapters from the remaining chapters, mm-hmm. and you can tell immediately that there's a difference in literary genre. Um, the first two chapters are prose, and then you'll see in chapter three the the way the thing is outlined is very different, and and that really reflects Hebrew poetry. Now. Hebrew, that's a whole other ballgame, uh, you know, what is Hebrew poetry and how does it function, and, and maybe we can talk about that at some stage, But, but at this point we want to say the first two chapters are distinct and different. So that would be your first major division if you will, <laughs> what I would call Job's misfortune, first two chapters and then you have this extended period from chapters 3 to 37 the huge part of the book which is what I would call the great debate between Job and his comforters and then something dramatically happens to change things in chapter 38 which brings in the third division of the book because God then enters into the fray he enters into the debate he he speaks from the whirlwind and that takes us through chapters 38 39 40 41 and into the opening verses of chapter 42 which is the last chapter which then basically leaves us with the fourth division, which is a very small division, the last part of chapter 42, which again translates back into prose. So basically you have the two center sections, poetic format, but the two outside, the first division, the last division would be prose. So I would call the first one Job's misfortune. The second one, the great debate. The third one, God speaks into the problem, and then the fourth one, Job's restoration. So that's how I would see the book kind of hanging together.
0: Let's um, let's talk about these first two chapters. Um, That first section is written in prose form. So let's go into that a little bit more. What should we make of that?
1: Well I, th- I think it's good you know I've called it job's misfortune but it, essentially what you have is an introduction in the first few verses right from the get-go you've got the righteous character of job described he's a good man this is this is a man who does not deserve uh, the bad things that are about to happen to him when people ask me often uh, how are you doing mm-hmm. you know my, my my immediate response is uh, better than I deserve <laughs> you know because that's what grace is all about isn't it I getting something you don't deserve but mm-hmm. But there's a sense in which Job is a righteous person. Now, there are not many people in the Bible that are as perfect as Job would be. Daniel is one, Jesus, of course, is another. Uh, But all the heroes of the Bible have all got their Achilles heel. But interesting here, as Job is described in the opening verses, his righteous character is promoted. And then you have Satan entering the drama. I mean, this is very dramatic. So Satan comes to God and he issues a challenge to God, and you know Job is a good person because hey, you've been good to him, so he's good to you. But if if misfortune came his way, then you know he would curse you and die. And so then then the remaining part of chapter one, Job loses his children; they're they're involved in an accident, they're killed, and he loses all his wealth. So now he is bereft of family and bereft of. You know, the the stock market crashed, so to speak, (laughs) and he, he and he's no he's no money anymore, but he doesn't curse God. And so Satan enters again in chapter two, the beginning, and issues a second challenge to God in the opening verses and basically says, well, it's one thing to lose your family and your money. But, you know, what what if he he loses his health? What What if there is a you know some kind of disease or, or plague or whatever and 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 as a result, job is afflicted with all kinds of sores, and then his his companionship with his wife, with his friends, so that he eventually becomes a lonely, destitute sick man hmm. with no money, no family. he's lost everything, everything, so that sets the scene for everything that will follow. And so interestingly, it's in prose, now we switch to the where the the writer is going to now appeal to our emotions. Because in prose, prose is used essentially to appeal to the imagination. Now we've got the picture. Mm -hmm. Now he turns to poetry to speak to our hearts.
0: Hmm. That's very interesting. When we get to the second division of the book, which, as you said, is a huge, it's, what, five-sixths of the book. Um, we've talked about this before, that when you do something for a longer period of time, or you spend more time on it, it's more significant. Is it really more significant than the rest of the book, or is it just because he, this is being laid out in such a <laughs> long, yeah, big yeah. way? No, it's a,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really fair question. Um, and, and my answer, you'll forgive me, is kind of yes and no, you know? yes in terms of, of obviously it contains the heart of the book hmm. and and i would say even this second section this what i call the great debate could be divided further into sub into two subdivisions uh, the first subdivision would be from chapters 3 to 31 and the second one chapters 32 to 37 uh, the first of those subdivisions really um, concern Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. And, and so the debate rages between those three and Job. And that takes you up to 31. And then in chapter 32, we have a different comforter, who a new comforter who enters, Elihu. And, and what you have here, interestingly, is these comforters, these so-called comforters, one wonders why they ever got this thing, comforters. <laughs> you know, when people talk about Job's comforters. We, you know, we say, you know, if you're a Job comforter, you're absolutely no use to anybody to do anything. <laughs> um, but interestingly, these comforters, they come from a different perspective. And yet, and I find this absolutely intriguing, even though they come from four different perspectives, they all come to the same conclusion. That's kind of hmm. fascinating, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Four comforters, does that mean, so then are there four viewpoints on suffering? No, because
1: they all they
0: all kind of conclude the
1: same thing. Hmm. Let me try and explain it a little better, perhaps. There are three of them that enter into debate with Job. Job doesn't enter into debate uh, with uh, Elihu. He's the young theologian. He's the young intellectual. Hmm. Uh, he knows all the answers, kind of thing, you
0: see. <laughs> we all know people like uh, that. But his,
1: yeah, of course. But, you know, it's interesting because his coming actually opens up the door to the appearance of God. I'll come to that in a moment. But, but it's really, really fascinating the way, the way it happens. Now, let me explain it this way. Eliphaz is the theologian. Uh, he's the pure theologian. He, he tends to be, when he engages Job, he's sympathetic to Job's plight. And he emphasizes experience. He simply says to Job, listen Job, you you need to understand that that God doesn't punish the innocent. You see. And and nobody is totally innocent. And, And you're not innocent. So why don't you just repent? And if you repent, God is going to deliver you. So that's Eliphaz. And then you've got Bildad. And Bildad comes on the scene. And if Eliphaz is a theologian, I would say that Bildad was the legalist. Whereas Eliphaz was sympathetic to Job, Bildad is argumentative. And he, he emphasizes tradition. And he basically says to Job, now listen Job, God is righteous. So if God is righteous, he doesn't punish a blameless person. So you cannot be blameless. And wicked people are punished, and everyone is sinned, and therefore everyone needs to be punished. And then you have Zophar who enters. Now, again, Eliphaz is the theologian, Bildad is the legalist. Zophar I would call the moralist. And, and he's blunt. He, you know, if Eliphaz emphasizes experience and Bildad emphasizes tradition. I would say that Zophar emphasizes doctrine. He's the, you know, he's the moralist. And then he comes across, he's very blunt. He says to Job, now listen, Job, your punishment is less than what you actually deserve. You deserve to be worse than this. Now, you know, that's so you can see why, why these guys are called Job's comforters. <laughs> and, and, you know, God punishes wickedness and so forth. Now, the interesting thing is that in this great debate, Each of them has their point to make and and Job responds to each one. So you've got Eliphaz makes his argument, Job responds. Bildad makes his his argument, Job responds. Zophar makes his argument, Job responds. And then there's round two, which is exactly the same. And then there's round three. Interestingly though, in this case, Zophar doesn't say anything. Now that takes us right through to to chapter uh, 31. and then in chapter 32, this is when you have oh, Eliphaz comes in and, in chapter 32 and 33. And I told you, you know, he was the young intellectual. And he basically tells Job that, Job, you need to experience grace, you know. Uh, you, and he defines grace in a beautiful way. I, I mean, I really like this. in In chapter 35, verse 10, no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? So grace is songs in the night. And I really like that. And basically what Elihu says is that, Job, you're more concerned about defending yourself than you are about defending God. And, and, and what I need for you to do is, you, you, need to, you need to remember the greatness of God, and you need to humble yourself and submit yourself to God. And that's Elihu. Hmm. If Eliphaz is appealing to experience, Bildad to tradition, Zophar to doctrine, Elihu is appealing to pure logic. He lays the foundation now for what God is going to say. Because ultimately, Job has to submit to this God and has to recognize the greatness of God and and, and does need to be more concerned with with God than with himself. And this will be a turning point. So, so Elihu... And, and by the way, Job does not respond to Elihu. Elihu, when he's finished, basically lays the, the foundation for what we call the appearance of God. The theological term we like to use is theophany. So he lays the basis for this theophany where God enters into the whole
0: debate. So, I mean, in essence, though, they are all saying this is your fault, aren't they? Yes, yes, yes. Different point of views, maybe, but they're all saying this is your fault. Well, they're coming, yeah,
1: they're coming from different perspectives, but arriving at the same place. Yes. Even Elihu arrives at the same place. But, you know, in each instance, in each instance, what you have here is Job defends himself. He challenges everybody, including God himself, to find him guilty. Right. So with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he actually pleads his innocence. To Zophar, he actually goes as far as accusing God. Hmm. You know, this is God's thing. It's not his thing. Um, He gives way at times to despair. He says, I don't understand what's going on. To Bildad, for example. And to Zophar, the moralist, he actually is sarcastic,
0: Hmm.
1: you know, it, but he but questions the whole purpose of life and 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 yet yet with his with so far he he basically pledges his continued holiness a life of righteousness his only hope even if it's a wrong thing to do even if he's punished for doing it it's the only option open to him you know it's kind of interesting despair is suffering minus meaning hmm let me let me let me just pause for a moment and think that through. Job got to a place, especially with Bildad, in his response to Bildad in, in chapter ten, and then again in chapter nineteen, and he basically gives way to despair. And in twenty six, he simply says, I, I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on." Now, when meaning evaporates, then suffering turns to despair. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was obviously the case with, uh, with Job.
0: Hmm. So, all these wonderful comforters, uh, how does Job take all of this?
1: Well, I mean, I think he keeps on affirming his innocence. Uh, he challenges God. He tells them all that he's not guilty and show me where I'm guilty. Uh, tell me where I'm guilty and I can, I'll repent of you. Tell me where I'm guilty. And interestingly, no one says specifics, you know, this is what you've done that's guilty. Although Elihu basically does when, when he says, you know, you're more concerned about defending yourself than God. You're more concerned with your, uh, your life than you are with God's greatness. And, and you will never resolve this problem until you humble yourself and submit to God. Now, Elihu is the one person that has remarkable insight in, into this whole thing. And Job, Job, so overwhelmed with despair, so overwhelmed with pain so overwhelmed with suffering that he basically doesn't know what to do except continue doing what he's doing Mm -hmm. in the hope that somehow it will turn around
0: so at this point god enters the debate and how how are we supposed to understand god's speech then
1: you know he does chapter 38 it's it's really a turning point and and ushers in the the next section of the book the, the what i would call the third section which runs from thirty, what is it, thirty-eight, beyond into 40 to forty-two, the first part of forty-two. So just over four chapters, and and you know it's kind of interesting. You know we, we read that he speaks from the whirlwind, and he speaks essentially twice. So what you have here is God enters, Job responds, God speaks, Job responds. The first speech is all about creation, the mystery of creation, what God has done uh, as the Creator God. You know that He's in charge; that He is completely uh, overall. He has absolute authority over the created order. Right. And Job responds to that. And and then you've got in the second speech, God talks about not so much the mystery of creation, but the mystery of evil. And basically, he gets to a point in this in these speeches that he brings about the end of the debate. And he does that by revealing his power and his wisdom. And so to the question, why do I suffer? God answers, who am I? Now that's fascinating. And basically on the basis of these speeches, I would say, to kind of summarize what he says, I would say that God says, listen, I created the world. I control the world, and I care for the world. That's God's contribution to the debate. Job is asking, why am I suffering? And God answers, I am the one who created the earth. I am the one who's in control, and I'm the one who cares for the world. So Job doesn't get the answer he wants, but he does get the answer he needs. And, and I say that because there was a need for Job and for us in the perspective of suffering. There is a need for us to look beyond human wisdom to the wisdom of God, which we talked about earlier. Because the two are, are often set against one another. And we engage too much in human wisdom to answer the perplexities of life. And, and Job clearly here in these chapters from 38 to the beginning of chapter 42, God demonstrates this amazing reality. I'm not gonna answer your question directly, why is there suffering? I'm gonna answer it in a different way. I'm gonna answer it in terms of the mystery of creation and the mystery of evil. And the fact that I am a God who created, I'm in control, and I am altogether love.
0: I understand the, the whole idea of God looking at Job and going, who are you, you arrogant little man? You know, I I am God. I I get that. But it's a little disappointing to hear why is there pain uh, to hear because. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, understand,
1: I understand. I understand. You know the, the kind of disappointment that that one might encounter there. But you know, you had asked me earlier on, "Does the book answer the riddle of life?" And I yeah. said, "Well, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves." Well, now we're getting to the answer. Okay. And the answer really is magnificent. I, I think this this these chapters where God enters into the fray and brings the debate to a halt absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. Because what God is saying to Job is. I want you to trust me under all circumstances of life. And I think that's still the message of Job. Are we going to trust this God under all circumstances? Are we going to trust this God when there are bombs exploding around us, when a pandemic wipes out part of the human race? I mean, are we going to trust this God? So basically what you have here is the who question becomes more important than the why question. And I think that's incredibly significant. Mm. Because in these responses of Job, I mean, these are quite remarkable as well. Job finally gets it. You know, he didn't get it throughout the main chapters of the book. But he finally gets it in these chapters in his response to God. Because he says, I know no plan of yours can be thwarted. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges his error. He says, I spoke of things I did not understand. He repents of the wrong that he was doing. And he says, ah, listen, I repent in dust and ashes. And then he encounters this who, this God, because he says, now my eyes have seen you. I mean, it's, it's, Job's response in these chapters is truly, truly magnificent. You know, God says in chapter 38, where were you when, when I laid the foundation of the earth? These chapters, don't you understand? Don't you know, he says to Job, that I am the great creator of God? I'm in total control of this. And, uh, you know, Job's response, in, in, especially in chapter 42, he says, uh, Job answered the Lord. This was Job's second response to, to the second speech. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, what he was saying was that his knowledge of God was secondary. It was through the mind. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now... He knows God personally because he says it's through the heart that I now understand you. And when we, when we encounter God by, with our hearts, uh, then that leads to a, a recognition of sin. So those, those verses at the beginning of chapter 42 are wonderful. And then with this personal encounter, the consequence becomes repentance. So he under- finally gets to a point where he finally understands He acknowledges his error. He repents of the wrong he's done. He encounters God. Here is an answer to the problem of suffering, if we understand it aright. If we understand it aright, what Job is saying is this, and what we can say in the midst of our suffering and pain. I know your power can do anything for me. I know your purpose will be realized in me. I know your paths are too wonderful for me. So whether we live or whether we die, we do all things for the glory of God. And so Job finally bows before the greatness of God. Elihu had said to him, Job, you're more concerned with your suffering than you are with God's greatness.
0: Hmm.
1: Why don't you acknowledge his greatness? Why don't you make that your starting point? Acknowledge your greatness, which will lead to repentance. And he was right. Job now bows before the greatness of God. I know your power, I know your purpose, I know your paths, and I rest in those in the midst of the pain. And that's a great, great, great answer to the problem of suffering, or the problem of pain.
0: Interesting that the comforters ultimately were all correct. (laughs) Um, to, To some extent. Okay. Uh, But Job didn't know
1: didn't I mean there was nothing that Job had done. I mean, he wasn't guilty of anything. He was a righteous man. I mean that's made very clear the beginning of the book. Right. And and so, you know, the the, the orthodox thing is, well, if if you're suffering, it must be your faults somehow. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Must be your fault. And I think the book the book of Job says, No, not necessarily. Life can suck at times. (laughs) You know bad things can happen to good people. You know, I mean, I have problems with Rabbi Kushner's book, you know, just make the best of it. And I mean, that's such a bunch of rubbish. I think the story of Job here unfolds a far greater, more deep, more theologically satisfying answer to the question of why Why do I suffer? He was a righteous man, but he failed to understand this God with whom he was dealing. And when he, when he was able to say, you know, Now my eyes see you. I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. makes all the difference. And because I see you, then now I recognize that the more important thing for me to do is acknowledge the wonder and the glory and the greatness because, because you can do anything for me. Your power can do anything. And whatever purpose you have in life can be realized, will be realized in me, And I believe that your paths, even through suffering, are going to be wonderful for me. Wow. I mean, I think that's a great, great, great answer, understanding the problem of suffering.
0: Yeah, I like what you said before, the who versus the why. If we can get the who straight, then the why won't matter.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think that's really true.
0: The pros in the last, very last part. What's, what's the purpose of those?
1: Yeah, you know, there's only it's the last 11 verses of the entire book, you know. And it brings the whole story to a fitting conclusion. It ends it in a most beautiful way. So the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And God gave him twice as much as he had before. And so he blesses him. So what you have here... In Job's restoration, I think it's beautiful. It isn't just. It isn't just that that God blesses him because he passed the trial, so to speak. The fact that he prayed for his friends, these comforters, who berated him, who yelled at him, you know, the fact that he prayed for them and asked God to, to be lenient to them and to, to to forgive them, it's a beautiful part of, of a righteous man. So his friends are forgiven, and his fortune is restored. Interestingly, in the book of James in the New Testament, in James chapter 5, verse 11, I believe it is, James makes this comment uh, referring to Job, which I think is fascinating. As you know, writes James, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the lord finally brought about because the lord is full of compassion and full of mercy
0: i know you like this book a lot um i I do too many people react to this book because they feel or they they maybe understand i think people understand and can relate to it uh, the whole suffering part of it as we kind of wrap things up what are some of the takeaways that we should we should take away from this.
1: Yeah, um, I, 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 you're right. I mean, I love this book. I think it is one of the most magnificent books in all of Scripture. And it, it the interesting thing is that it doesn't give us any pat answers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are people who would long for a pat answer. It's not here. But the profound answer that it gives is so much more... Significant and wonderful than than the pat answers of why there's suffering, why there's pain, you know. And and you know, you you've heard of all those kind of answers, and I have as well. And and has Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar they they all they knew the answers for the. I mean, they knew the answers to mm-hmm. the question why is there suffering? You see, but Job, the book of Job, veers us away from those premeditated answers. And what you have here. As we look, you know, what can we conclude from this book? What can be discovered about the meaning of suffering? And so what you have here is Job's story ends with grace. It ends with grace. Not simply mustering the courage to go on. That's, You see, that's Rabbi Kushner's thesis in his book. You know, you just kind of, bad things happen to good people and, you know, you just kind of You just kind of build yourself up. You just, you know, you swallow hard and you, you know, you you muster the courage and on you go. Rubbish. (laughs) Total rubbish. What you have here is a book that, that ends with the inexhaustible waves of God's grace. Kind of like standing on the shore and watching the waves break one after the other after the wave upon wave, wave upon wave, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. The book begins with a discipline of hearing. It ends with the relationship of seeing. It begins with a look of fear. It ends with a sense of wonder. It begins with the ring of righteousness. It ends with a note of faith. It begins with the thunder of God's power. It ends with the whisper of his grace. It's Magnificent. Yeah, I love this book. Yeah.
0: You know, one more thing I want to throw out there. When we think about the work that The Word Is Out is doing in Africa and Asia, and the suffering that goes on there, it's so starkly different than that, which we experience here in our Western world bubble, isn't it? Um, yet the, the response there is rather different than ours tends to be.
1: Why is that? Have, have you noticed that? You know, it's it's really true. You know, when when I'm in Africa and when I'm working with with my brothers and sisters in Christ in that great continent, I am humbled by them. Their life is is full of difficulties. Mm-hmm. And we in America and in the West and Europe, you know, we don't realize how good we have it. I mean, it's just you know, there are hospitals, there are doctors all over the place. There's there's money to be had, money to be made. And there's ample food. You know, we throw so much food away, those saints in other parts of the world have barely enough food to put on the table. When they're sick, they often are not able to get the medical attention that they need. I have had friends there who have died for lack of medical attention. And you know, it's just, it, it's ubiquitous uh, throughout the, the global south. And yet, in spite of the, the difficulties and the distress, they don't despair they don't despair because they do not take meaning out of the equation and their meaning they find their meaning in their relationship with god as revealed in jesus christ and that keeps them going and that's why they're able to sing in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the distress genuinely i'm humbled and amazed at how they tackle these things and and do it with with smiles on their faces and laughter in their hearts. We have so much to learn from from the, our brothers and sisters in other parts of, of the world. Yeah.
0: Well, Alan, thank you. Another wonderful exposition of all that God has to teach us from his word. So for our next podcast, we will delve back into the New Testament for an inductive look at the book of Hebrews. What can we expect?
1: Well, Hebrews was written to a bunch of Christians who had been Jewish in origin who had become Christians and through persecution and distress and suffering they were beginning to think you know maybe we should uh, revert to a, a form of Judaism and the writer whom we don't know is encouraging them to stay true to the faith. He's said to them you know you don't want to go back because everything in the Christian faith is so much better and let me reiterate all the things they're so much better. It's a word of encouragement a word of inspiration and, and the teaching in it is marvelous. So we we'll look forward to that.
0: Well, please be sure to join us for that. And be sure to come to us with your thoughts, your comments, and your questions. Reach out to us either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.